Hi, Lloyd. In a way, but now I'm back. Good evening, Mr. Torrance. It's good to see you. It's good to be back, Lloyd. What will it be, sir? Hair of the Dog That Bit Me, a shining retrospective series podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Arnie. Part of their Stephen King retrospective series. That'll do her. No charge to you, Mr. Torrance. No charge? Your money's no good here. Orders from the house. Say, Lloyd, I'm the kind of man who likes to say up front this podcast series will have spoilers and harsh language. Thank you for saying so. And these podcasts, they're coming out each week at nowplayingpodcast.com? It's not a matter that concerns you, Mr. Torrance. At least not at this point. Anything you say, Lloyd. Anything you say. What say we take a listen now? Today we're discussing Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Crothers, and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Coming to you live from the Overlook Hotel, here's Arnie! (laughs) Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, the little host that lives in your mouth. (laughs) I'm going to go brush my teeth now. Except when he goes down to your stomach to hide, right? Yes. (laughs) What's going on there? Who is this Tony? There's a lot of mysteries here, and I'm sure we're going to delve into many of them. Tony being just one of a thousand. Is Tony wearing a dog outfit? That's the only thing I need to know. (laughs) I think we have found the origin of the furry fanaticism. (laughs) We'll get there. So we are back continuing our Stephen King retrospective series with The Shining, his third full-length novel, came out back in 77 and adapted to film in 80. I read this book way back when I saw this movie before I read the book, though. I did reread the book. My review is up over at Books and Nachos, and I think it's really timely. We're getting to The Shining. In fact, we had to work hard to get The Shining in this calendar year because King wrote a sequel this year, Dr. Sleep, that I'm going to be reviewing next week on Books and Nachos. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Stephen King, third novel, maybe his best. Yeah, I read it too. And yeah, I liked it. But the big deal for me here, the way that I think of Shining, is always through the filter of this movie we're talking about tonight. The Shining is primarily, to me, a film by Stanley Kubrick that, yeah, has source roots in a Stephen King novel. We'll talk about it. Now, this is our first time reviewing anything Kubrick for now playing, and I think that we need to throw it out there. I have a bad feeling about this, that I am on a show being co-hosted by two what would you call yourselves? Kubrickians? What is the religion where you bow down before Kubrick and to say something bad is like throwing a stone at Christ? <laughs> I don't know. I don't go to that church. You know, I am a Kubrick fan. I, I will not deny that. I think many of his works are masterful. I mean, 2001 is probably my favorite movie ever. But you know what? I The guy's got some flaws. I've 
watched all his films. I've never gone back to Eyes Wide Shut or even Full Metal Jacket, I think, is kind of overrated. I think he does make mistakes. People try to say he spent so much time setting up every shot and was so careful. They make up excuses when he has continuity errors in his films. No, they're continuity errors. I, I don't worship him, but I do think he is a master director and filmmaker. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that you have to think everything that he does is genius to be in complete awe with what he's done for cinema in general. I think that, for me, the run from Paths of Glory to Clockwork Orange, I can't think of anybody in working in film, producer, actor, whoever, who had a string of such successful movies as what Kubrick did in that span of time. I just think that those are tremendous films. Shining actually comes... After that fact, I don't consider it one of his greatest works, but it's definitely one of his works. It definitely has all of the facets that we think of when we think of a Kubrick film. I mean, I think there's a very distinctive quality, and you can see it in every frame of this film. And I'm just going to come out, and we always have different points of view on now playing. I'm a Kubrick skeptic. I just think he's overrated. That I like some of his films. I dislike some of the films that I have seen film students get on their knees and open their mouths for. So I am coming into this not as a Kubrick fan. There are some films I like. We'll see if The Shining is one of them. But I find the man to be ponderous and cold. And when he tries to do comedy, I do not share his sense of humor. And when he tries to do drama, I'm often not connecting with the characters and wishing he'd get the fuck on with it. I want to just put it out there. I know I'm not alone. Anybody who's afraid to say Kubrick is overrated, stand up and unite behind me because that is where I'm coming from. I, I could count all of them on, on one hand behind you there. <laughs> hey, I know Cronenberg is with me. I know King is with me. I know Romero is with me. There are some outspoken critics of Kubrick, and I am going to join those ranks. It's fine with me. Believe me, I am not going to attack anyone for a difference of opinion. I will very staunchly argue that what he has done for filmmaking is revolutionary. Whether you like the films or not, the style, the way that he... I mean, he invented camera lenses. I mean, things had never been seen before that he did first. He is a pioneer. Whether or not you like where he goes or not, he did get there first. And I do deeply admire... I think anyone that is a film fan has to begrudgingly admire Kubrick. But no, I know many people that don't like him. Many women, actually, that I've met feel that he's misogynistic. And yes, the cold criticism comes up quite often. I think that you have to like a sterile, cold aesthetic in order to really like a Kubrick film. He's It permeates every frame. And lest I come off as a hater, I will completely acknowledge what you've said. I think the man would be a genius cinematographer if that's the role he had left himself in. But writer, director, humanist mixed results. I do not hate everything he's done. I would count Clockwork Orange as one of my favorite films of all time. So he does have home runs. But again, I just wanted to put it out there that I have a feeling that at the very least, you know, Jacob, you say you don't believe everything he does is good, but your favorite movie of absolutely all time is his. I think bias should be acknowledged before going into debate. I, I don't think that's a bias because he happened to also make my favorite film. 
I'm sorry, the guy made a really amazing groundbreaking <laughs> film. That's not my fault, Arnie. That's not my fault. We wouldn't be worth anything as reviewers if we decided carte blanche, these are the people we like, and whatever they do, we're going to applaud. I appall that kind of movie making. I don't think I've ever given a review where I've said, I like this because it was made by these people. I Definitely, if we were doing a Kubrick retrospective, you would not see 12 green arrows from me. But let's look at this film, The Shining. It was actually coming off of Kubrick in a bit of a recovery mode after Barry Lyndon. Yeah, I do feel like it was a recovery mode after Napoleon, to be quite honest. That after 2001, he was really the biggest director around. Thought he could do whatever he wanted. His dream project, never been realized, was to make a movie with Jack Nicholson about Napoleon Bonaparte. And they built sets... They raised the money, they spent two years developing it, and then it collapsed. And I think it really hurt Kubrick that with all of his power and with all of his goodwill, he could not get that movie made with Nicholson. And when Barry Lyndon, which I think was the booby prize for not making Napoleon, it's his period film that wanted to be like Napoleon, when that one tanked at the box office, I think he was really hurt. I think he was devastated. And I think he was looking for a commercial project that would express some of that creative frustration and anger. I don't know that he was a big fan of Stephen King or Carrie or Salem's Lot. Uh, the novel was purchased by Warner Brothers. They had shopped other horror movie projects by Kubrick. He was offered The Exorcist and considered it for a little bit, but ultimately said no. I think that he had wanted to make a horror movie, but I think it's just kind of random that it happens to fall into the Stephen King retrospective. Well, what I've read is that after Barry Lyndon, he really started to feel overshadowed. He passed on The Exorcist, but felt that Friedkin was excelling in areas where he was not. And so he became obsessed. Kubrick obsessed? No, I know. You think I jest, but obsessed with doing a horror film. And he just started reading everything he could get his hands on with horror. And one of them was The Shining, which... King had done, and Kubrick's quote about it was, The novel is by no means serious literary work, but the plot is, for the most part, extremely well worked out. And for a film, that's really all that matters. Which I think may be the first shot fired across Stephen King's bow. <laughs> yeah, Kubrick probably did start it, I'll be honest with you. It, it, I, I don't think he was, let me say, enamored or overly in awe with, with the fact that he was working with a guy who had had two pop culture hits with Salem's Lot and Carrie. It should be pointed out, all of Kubrick's movies are based on novels, and most of them are not considered classic literature. This was sort of his thing, was that he would take a novel that was maybe admired, but largely maybe ignored, and use the fertile ground of, of what he saw good in it to make it his own thing. I think that what we will find out about Kubrick is that he is not someone that is an originator, his idea of creativity comes from postmodern. He takes what's around him and he assembles it into something new. And I think this is where we get a lot of the different opinions is adaptations. I mean, this whole King series is about adaptations. You know, we played with that with DC and Marvel, but those characters have always been changing over the years. These are, you know, static books, static stories. And what is an adaptation to a film? Well, every, everyone likes to say the book is always better than the movie, but I feel like with an adaptation, that's what it is. You're going to take something from the book, but you're going to adapt it to moving pictures and sound and 
he sees something there, but he wants to adapt it. He doesn't want to just translate it straight and almost just photograph pages from the book. Right. I'm not a big fan of fundamentalist filmmaking, which is to say that the written word is king, and whatever you do, it has to be in service of what was done in the source material. I think that that can be really a dead end. I do not mind when they change an ending or throw away characters or get rid of subplots or add something new when it tells an interesting story. I mean, obviously... There are many cases where you see someone's artistic ideas clashing with the source material. It leads to bad filmmaking. But I think ultimately, it's almost a necessity. Books are books. Movies are movies. If you're adapting a book, you're going to have to change stuff. Yeah, I agree completely. I think in the number of adaptations we've done, we've all thought the movie needs to be judged as the movie. And no matter what, if you read the book first, you're going to be comparing it to the movie, but here we're always looking at the movie as the film. But I think at the time, for the listeners who don't know, Stephen King, of course, wrote the book. When this came out, he was of muted opinion on it. He would just say that it has some good things, it has some bad things, and it nets a zero. And as the years went on, and I'm not talking ten, I'm talking maybe one or two, by the time it was on VHS, he was pretty outspoken about how his book was not done justice by Kubrick's film, and King fans at the time were on record as walking out of the theater saying they did not make a movie up to King's book. So the opinion held by King himself and many of his readers in the 70s was Kubrick failed in this adaptation. And I think like a lot of Kubrick films, this wasn't a big hit right away, or it wasn't recognized for what it is today. I think most of his films took a few years to really catch on. Yeah, I think most audiences are stunned, confused, and yeah, if you had just come off of reading the book and wanting to see it on screen, disappointed. I can understand that disappointment. I did go back, I listened to The Shining on audio because I wanted to be familiar with the source material when we talked about it, and yes, this is not an adaptation of that novel. There are many things about the second half and the plot points and the whys that are just gone, excised from this, not even replaced with new things, just removed. By the same token, to give a little bit of backstory, I can't say that King is entirely unbiased and not just because it's his own book. In the 70s, he was an up-and-coming writer. He'd had three books published. He would mention in interviews how fun it was at first in 77 to be able to say at cocktail parties, my newest book is being made by Stanley Kubrick, and everybody goes, ooh, ah, you're something. And then by the time you get to 1979, you're telling the same story. They're like, uh-huh, and it's coming out when? <laughs> it did take a while. It was a whole year of filming and another whole year of editing, and then you could argue maybe it wasn't even done then. I mean, there is... Tom Cruise talked on the set of Eyes Wide Shut that Kubrick was still cutting Shining in his spare time. I mean, the movie was never done on some level for him. And King, though, might have had a little bit of an ego. This is Arnie opining based upon fact, but when King found out Kubrick was doing it, King did take it upon himself to go, Hey, Stanley, here, I wrote a draft for you of the screenplay. It was required. It was actually part of the contract he had with Warner Brothers when he sold it, was that he got to write the first draft. Not the final draft, but he at least got to set the tone for what the script should like, according to his vision, 
And, you know, I'm sure he got paid more that way, too. So that's a way of paying him extra for a best-selling novel. And Shining was a hit, right? I mean, this was the first Stephen King book that was a bestseller from the get-go. This wasn't a case like Carrie, where the movie made the book happen. Right, It was right. More, more like they were riding the wave of Carrie's success, and people went to go find the latest from the Stephen King guy. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, Kubrick, he did consult with King. I'll bring up some of their conversations, but... He was known to call Stephen King at like three o'clock in the morning and just go, do you believe in God? (laughs) A well-known fact about Stanley Kubrick. You know, what I knew about him as a child was that he was exacting, that he had made everyone do dozens, sometimes a hundred takes of things that I had in my mind that he was an authoritarian and that what he said goes and that he had all the answers. In truth, most people will tell you that worked on the Stanley Kubrick movie was that he talked to everyone. He picked everyone's brain. What do you think? What do you think? He would call random people just to get their impressions on, yeah, things like God and religion and whatever. Anything that might spark the idea for finding the right moment and the right ideal. Kubrick did not know what he wanted to make when he started out with The Shining. He knew what he wanted it to feel like, but he did not have it all worked out in his head. This is largely an improvised work that we're seeing. In the end, yeah, he and King had a falling out. He would, in the time that this movie came out, call King a bit of a brat and threw out his draft completely, said, this is not what I want to do. I don't know if the contract was King had to write it. There was no part of the contract that said Kubrick had to use a word. Kubrick had a writing partner. He usually did. Diane Johnson uh, actually co-wrote and has co-writing credit with him. She said... There was never any plan to ever use King's Draft. It was it was not considered. It was not even looked at for ideas on, on how to write this. Kubrick had in his head, he very much knew where he wanted uh, the horror to come from, and it was very different from where Stephen King saw the horror coming from. Yeah, in another shot, Kubrick did say he brought in a serious American novelist to help him write the script. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't know who Diane Johnson is. She might have written some great stuff. But, yeah, she was a New York Magazine columnist. I I think that she had more academic cred, maybe, than Stephen King, who King was always considered a populist who wasn't serious literature. And, uh, yeah, I guess Diane Johnson was. What's funny is my personal experience with this film, I saw it before I knew who Stephen King was. I mentioned in the Carrie podcast about how I went out of my way to record Carrie off late night television and watch it as me getting into Stephen King. But if you've listened to our shows going way back to Friday the 13th, you know that as a child of single digit age, I was fascinated but terrified by horror. Absolutely terrified. I wanted to watch Dracula, the 70s version on network television. My sister had to be home to watch it with me because it was like Dracula was going to come out of the television. I ended up watching The Shining when it was on TV back when I was nine years old. And this movie scared the shit out of me. To the point that the next year, I saw Prizzy's Honor in theaters because my parents couldn't find a babysitter. They took me. I forced myself to go to sleep because seeing Jack Nicholson on the big screen was about to make me (laughs) shit myself. I don't doubt it. This is, when you say Jack Nicholson, this is the first part that comes to my mind. It's the one... Uh, for better or for worse, the typecasting of him 
as the crazy man. He had made a lot of parts already in Hollywood. By the time he made The Shining, he had won an Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest. He had all throughout the 70s played a wild man. But this is the part, I got to tell you. I'm right there with you. And I saw it at a very impressionable age as well. I don't remember the exact year. But I wasn't much older than Danny when I saw it and loved it. Totally scared me. But unlike Poltergeist, a movie that I watched repeatedly because there was something kind of warm about that movie, too. This one, it was so scary, I would only watch it in bits. I would walk away from this movie because it really did just... It tapped into my world. I mean, I gotta say, I did have a dad. He had some drinking issues at the time. I had a mom that was kind of mousy and ineffectual. I was home alone like Danny. There were things that felt so real about it. And I really admired Danny. I would play Danny when I would have, uh, you know, play dates or, or what have you with my brother. I Was your brother Jack? <laughs> no, he was, I, I, he was, yeah, he, I guess he was, actually, yeah, I was like, he was the one with the axe, you're right, yes, he was, but, uh, yeah, it was a thrill to me, particularly when Danny slides out the window down that snowbank, I mean, I thought that there was something wonderful about Danny's story, having magical powers, and defeating evil, and I loved this movie, but there were parts that were too scary for me to sit through, I don't know when I saw the movie start to finish, but I saw it in bits and pieces a lot. Arnie, you could call me out for being a bias for Kubrick, but I watched this film before I knew who Kubrick was. I And again, I'm not a horror fan, but I watched this on TV in bits and pieces like you, Stuart, because, yeah, I was scared at a young age. You know, I didn't know who Kubrick was till I was in high school and I was introduced to Clockwork Orange, but there's something about this film. And again, I'm not a big horror fan, but there's something about this film that, yeah, maybe I was just impressionable, but it always stuck in my mind. And this is one of my top horror films that I always go back to. I, I like the atmospheric feel here. And it was something that stuck into me at a young age, seeing bits and pieces, you know, Jack Nicholson chopping through the door, all this, all this stuff we're going to discuss. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't have had any knowledge of how, how movies were made or anything when I saw this. When I saw this, I was watching Roadrunner. I, I'm telling you, I was Danny. I probably shouldn't have been watching this, but I probably just saw Alien last month, and this month I saw The Shining. So yeah, I was having a really traumatic eighth <laughs> birthday, I guess. Yeah, my, I actually was way too young to be watching this as well. I watched it because my older sisters wanted to see me squirm, and my parents were out that night. So it was <laughs> partial torture. But that said, I can't say I go back to this that often. When I was putting this one in, I picked up the Blu-ray as soon as it came out, but I hadn't had a chance to watch it. And I got to thinking, I hadn't seen The Shining in about 15 years. I saw it on DVD a couple of times when the DVD was new. And it was with great excitement that I put this in and was able to revisit and see how well my memories held up. And this is a Father's Day regular for me. Not not that that's any commentary <laughs> on my dad. You don't have children. It should be pointed out. You don't have children. Yes, I do not have children. <laughs> you and your dad, not you and your two-year-old. <laughs> yes. You know what, though? I, I like to watch it ironically on Father's Day, because it's about the worst father ever. <laughs> and you sit there and just go, Red Rum. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have spent all year... This, probably more than any other podcast we had on our schedule, was the one I was most looking forward to in 2013. And let me tell you, I, I did it up. Not only did I read the book again, here in L.A., they actually had a Kubrick museum piece. I got to walk around, like Planet Hollywood style, all of the set pieces of all the Kubrick films. I can't tell you how much joy it was to walk through the Corova Milk Bar or see the monolith from 2001. But yeah, The Shining Room had axes in the wall and typewriters and they had the little girl dresses. 
It was great fun. And a few months ago, actually, they re-released this movie in the very limited capacity in theaters. So I actually went back and had a theatrical experience with the film before watching it again on DVD. And that kind of brings me to what version of the film did you see? And often when I ask that, we talk about different cuts. But one of the big things about this movie is a technical one, and that's aspect ratio. And one of the things I'd always understood is that Kubrick shot this in a 4 by 3 TV aspect ratio. So when you'd see it on VHS or on DVD, the DVD was not letterboxed. It was in the ratio that the film was shot. But I was a little shocked and had to do some research. I thought I got ripped off because I put in the Blu-ray and it was 16 by 9 or technically I think 1.77. I was right there with you, Arnie. I was flipping around, checking my different wide modes, zoom, trying to get that right ratio. And then I just realized, no, it's not in that TV format. You need to be careful. I don't know. I didn't see it in Blu-ray format. But they are, in some cases, old movies. They are going back. They know that people spend a lot of money on their high-def TV. They're cutting them to in the shape of rectangles. And you're not getting its proper true square. Yes, The Shining is a square. That was clear to me when I went and saw it projected. This movie was, it's a little bit bigger than television. The television ratio was 133 to 1. This is 166 to 1. But yeah, far smaller than almost any other movie you would see. It is not a rectangle. It is a square. And the reason for this being, what the DP spoke to, and as a voice of Kubrick, of course, was that it would enhance the claustrophobia. Kubrick never wanted you to get away from the people's faces. He didn't want you to feel like there was anything other than Jack Nicholson up in your grill. And so I think it works. We're going to talk about the whole filming style of this movie. I think it's its best asset. But the reason you have a square and not a rectangle is because he didn't want you to escape the characters and their stares. That's not entirely true. That is the common lore. If you talk to the people he edited the film with, when the DP was talking on the commentary about having him in your face, he was talking about specifically centered and the way that they did depth of field. But Kubrick just did not want other people editing his film. When he shot this, he shot this with the full intent of matting it. When it was first aired in theaters, it was aired in widescreen the way Kubrick wanted it. But knowing it would go to TV, he didn't want them to crop his stuff, so he cropped his own. He basically reverse letterboxed his own film but shot wide enough so that you would not have half faces on the screen. Huh. So is the Blu-ray cut, is that his official widescreen version, his vision? The Blu-ray cut is recreating the theatrical experience of The Shining from 1980. But one thing that I read online, and I cannot find corroboration, is that it was in his will that the DVD not be letterboxed. I don't know if that... Will was so poorly written that when they got to Blu-ray, they're like, it's not a DVD. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. It's technically true. (laughs) But everything I've understood is that the way this was filmed was with intended matting. And there are actually certain flaws like shadows of helicopters and things more visible that Kubrick wouldn't want you to see in the square version. So he shot it as square, and then he, in his exacting way, matted it to a rectangle. So I dare say they're both different versions of his vision, but for the theatrical experience, he always knew it would be a rectangle. Yeah, well, then I wonder what I saw. It didn't feel like a 
CinemaScope movie. Let me put it that way. If indeed it is a wider aspect ratio than the TV version, it doesn't feel by much. I, I would say the effect was very similar for me in theaters as it was in the home viewing format. And with a lot of these revivals, I've noticed theaters sometimes don't actually have prints of the film. They grab DVDs or whatever media is around and hook it to a projector and put it on a screen and call it a theatrical showing. So for all you know, you might have seen the DVD. They told me it was a print and it, it had grain, but yeah, who knows? I did. I wasn't in the projection room. All I can tell you is that I had the experience both with an audience in a theater and alone at home with all the lights off late at night. And I also actually watched it in both. I watched it on the Blu-ray, but I still have my DVD in the 4.3, and so I watched it once with the commentary in 4.3, just so I could see the picture. Well, I think we need to get to it. Arnie, give me the plot. The Overlook Hotel has a storied history. Built in the first decade of the 20th century on an Indian burial ground, the hotel has housed four presidents, numerous celebrities, and also been party to plenty of nefarious deeds. Such as in 1970, when the winter caretaker, Charles Grady, went insane and killed his wife and two daughters with an axe. But none of that concerns Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson. Jack tired of his normal day life as a teacher, so he quit his job to take a winter gig as caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. For six months, Jack, his wife Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and his son Danny will live in the isolated hotel doing minor repairs as needed, and Jack can write his great American novel. The hotel's history won't stop him, nor will his son's seizure. Danny sometimes speaks to Tony, the boy who lives in his mouth and talks with a strange voice. When Tony found out about their winter vacation, Danny saw unspeakable horrors that made him seize up, but his doctor could find nothing medically wrong, so the three set off for the Overlook. Upon arrival, Danny meets the head cook Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, who realizes Danny has psychic power a power Dick shares and calls The Shining. In a private moment, Dick explains to Danny that this power will make him more susceptible to the hotel's energies and gives him a warning to stay out of room 237. Dick then goes off to winter in Florida, leaving the Torrance family alone. But almost immediately, Danny starts to see strange things, such as two creepy blonde girls in the hallway where he's riding his big wheel. Jack starts to act strangely as well, his temper exceedingly short. Soon the snow comes and cuts the Torrance family off from the rest of civilization, taking down their phone lines. But the strange events in the hotel are happening more readily, and finally Danny's curiosity pulls him into room 237, where Danny is attacked and emerges with bruises around his neck. Wendy thinks Jack hurt Danny, which is when a party from the 1920s begins in the ballroom, and Jack starts to drink up the newly stocked liquor. Jack goes to investigate room 237, where he sees a sexy naked woman in the tub, but when he kisses her, she turns into a dead, decaying corpse of an old woman. Delbert Grady soon appears at the party and tells Jack that his wife and son need to be corrected. Jack sabotages the CB radio and the snowcat to prevent any outside communication, and Danny, frightened, calls out psychically to Dick. Wendy confronts her husband with a baseball bat, knocking him in the head and locking him in the pantry, but Delbert unlocks the door and Jack gets an axe to correct Wendy and Danny. Dick shows up to get Jack's axe in the chest, and then Jack chases after Danny into the hotel's hedge maze. Danny outsmarts his father by backtracking, literally, and Danny and Wendy escape in Dick's snowcat while Jack dies of exposure lost in the maze. And then we see a photo from the Overlook taken in the 1920s, showing Jack in front of a group of partiers as credits roll. So a lot to talk about in this, and 
there's a lot of theories about this movie. I actually thought this would be one of the most simple plot summaries I ever wrote until I realized I can't make assumptions about anything. I can't make assumptions about ghosts versus hallucinations. I can't make assumptions about psychic powers versus schizophrenia. So I have to write out what we see, and then we can discuss what it means. <laughs> Isn't that the shocker? Boy, when I saw this as a kid, it was simple. I had the child's perception of it. Evil ghosts make a dad go crazy. Nothing scarier than the thought that your parent would want to come and kill you. A little boy triumphs with his magical power. It was like any other movie from the 80s. I loved it for its simplicity. But you're right. As I now approach Jack's age... I'm seeing it much more as a puzzler, as a mystery, as an unsolvable riddle. And yeah, you're right. A lot of theories as to what's going on here, even from the get-go. Yeah, I will put out there, I saw that film, Room 237, where the mysteries are Kubrick faced the Apollo moon landing, or yes. the entire <laughs> movie is about the Holocaust. I think some of those people are a little bit certifiable, especially the one who believes every time somebody stands next to a rectangle, it's supposed to be a big penis. <laughs> Artie, those are your people that are the Church of Kubrick there. They are making every excuse, every leap and bound for him. Those are your biased people. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love the movie, but yeah, it, not because it illuminates The Shining in ways I'd never thought of. And many times I found their theories infuriating. But what's true about them and me, and I think anyone that goes back to Kubrick's work, is that we all want to dive back into the subconscious. This is an incomplete picture here. We are trying to remember what we saw and put together something that makes sense to us, that we come up with a hundred different theories and to someone, yeah, it's a penis, and to another person, it's the Native American Holocaust. I, I get it. I, I think... I don't travel well with all theorists here, but we've all come to do the same thing. And I can respect the fact that everyone's going to see this movie in a different way. It's part of its charm, really. Yeah, uh, everyone will see it a different way. I'm curious how the three of us see it. I still think those people are nuts and wear tinfoil under their hats. I saw penises everywhere in this film. <laughs> yeah, but that's a Tuesday for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the Native American one, I'll give them props. There is some support there. I don't think the movie is about it. But I think that he credibly showed how that was subtext, that, you know, means something to you or it doesn't. To him, it meant everything. It was the movie for him. But, yeah, most of the other ones. Yeah, the moon landing, I was just... I actually walked away from Room 237 more convinced that the moon landing was faked than I was convinced Kubrick meant any of that stuff in his film. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think that any of them were on to what Kubrick meant. I think that Kubrick knows authoritatively. Again, I want to say, my early conception of him was that he was a god, that he had all of it worked out, and the reason why he put his actors through hundreds of takes was so that he could break them down and make them do it exactly how he had it in his mind. That is not the case. The Shining is not the case of one man exerting his will on hundreds of people to have his vision realized. It is the story of a man who knows that he wants to dive into primal images and subconscious horror and is trusting his actors and the people he's assembled to help him find the best path to it. I think that it is a discovery here. The man shot rehearsals. He didn't break people down into doing what he wanted. He didn't know what he wanted. And I don't think... Even in the end, he had a complete vision. Like I said, he was cutting this movie until the day he died. 
I think he has a reputation because of this film, because of 2001, of being way out there, you know, baby floating in space, what's that all about? And, you know, I think 2001, maybe someday we'll do that, I think that's a pretty simplistic story after a couple of viewings. This one, though, maybe it is because he didn't know where he wanted to go, maybe because it is more primal. This is one, well, it might not be as masterfully shot or done, There, there's something about it that keeps unraveling every time you watch it. Well, I'll tell you this much. My personal take, and I invite anyone to have their own, is that this is very autobiographical. That this is the story of a man who is creatively stumped, who is forced into maddening repetition, who gets off on really abusing Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers. I think that Jack Nicholson is Stanley Kubrick in this movie. I see it very much as a story of a man who didn't know what to do next and was haunted by it. And Jack Nicholson, this was a Kubrick choice. It was one that Stephen King was not happy to hear. I, it's kind of remarkable to think that, but Stephen King wanted someone that seemed like a nice guy to play the role of Jack Torrance so that he had somewhere to go when he descended into madness. When he cast Jack Nicholson as a crazy guy, isn't that a foregone conclusion? More so now than then. Yeah, you did have Cuckoo's Nest back then. I was just completely stunned, having not all that long ago done the Batman retrospective, to realize that right here, Jack Nicholson defined a persona that he would just bring out, whether it's as good as it gets, Batman, any movie you put him in, he's going to be Jack from The Shining from this moment on. Joker is definitely Jack. Yeah, most of his roles. I think he was typecast after this one. He was credibly, dramatically crazy throughout the 70s. After The Shining, he was playing a cartoon. And you know what? I will, I guess, give some credit to Stephen King here. If the setup is that we're supposed to trust this father when we see him in this interview and we're supposed to think he's a nice guy and we're going to be horrified as he makes this change throughout the movie, I think that would make a better story. I never buy it. Jack always comes off crazy in this film from the first time he sits down in that interview as the movie opens. It's the eyebrows, right? I mean, those mm. freaking <laughs> arched eyebrows. I don't know if yep. those are by birth or he shaves them that way, but those eyebrows and the fact that he just sits there with that crazy grin. He hears about axe murderers. Big smile. Yeah. <laughs> it's what he's looking for. I mean, he's like, this is what he hopes to see. Later, he'll just say that almost everything here feels like deja vu. Like he was, this is his dream. This is what he's come to happen. Maybe it could be said from the get go, he's been harboring resentment. I don't know if it's homicidal, but real anger towards Danny and his wife from the get go. And that this hotel frees him of uh, having to be stuck with them. Yeah, but it, it seems like he's looking for that freedom. I, again, that's very different when you have a psycho right off the bat looking to kill his family mm -hmm. versus he slowly unravels and goes mad here. And maybe that was a desire he had, but it's totally unconscious and it slowly came up for whatever reason as he sit in this hotel. I, I do think that would make a better story, a better character arc versus this guy that's just, I never, I mean, when he starts engaging and talks about the Donner Party and cannibalism with his, you know, five-year-old son, this dude is obviously off his rocker. Yeah, I get from this film that he almost took the job as an excuse to kill his wife and son. I do think it plays that way, yeah. That's what I got from his performance. And yeah, like you said, he had to do a hundred takes. And the takes would range from maniacal to calm 
Kubrick chose these takes. So it's not necessarily Nicholson's character choices so much as Kubrick's out of the hundred times he made Nicholson say it choosing this. But if you look at King's work, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, you can hear all about it at Books and Nachos, but there, Jack lost his job as a teacher because he was not just a reforming alcoholic, he was a rageaholic. He beat his son when he was drunk, and he beat a student when he was sober and lost all of his jobs. This was his last chance. A former drinking buddy at his school was a shareholder of the Overlook, got him this gig, and if this didn't work out, he would be working at a fast food place or a car wash trying to support a wife and kid. And so this was his attempt to go there. And yes, he wanted to write in the book a play and try to get back on track so that he could get back in good with academia. Here, I don't know why Jack took the job. He's like, I'm tired of teaching. I'm gonna just come up here and write. It's like <laughs> the great vacation, like a second honeymoon to just lock yourself away from civilization by choice. Not only that, but the guy is like, you know, it's not very physically demanding. I'll say Shelley Duvall is the one doing all the work. I'd never see Jack Nicholson once lift a finger to do anything about caretaking. He doesn't do any repairs. He doesn't go down to the boiler room. He doesn't do anything except, yes, quote-unquote work on this great American novel, which we're never privy to even what it might be about. We don't get the sense beyond the overlook to know what might interest him or or what it might be. Again, it feels kind of like Kubrick. He didn't know what he was going to have here. He knew he wasn't going to follow the Stephen King story, but he is approaching this with the idea of he knows where he wants it to end up with this predestined kind of horror. I'm not convinced that Jack Nicholson really does know what he wants to write about when he's signing up for five months of isolation. He actually tells Wendy at one point he doesn't even have an idea. When he's trying to write he is suffering from complete writer's block. He has no idea what he's going to write, but he figures it'll come. Right. And when Wendy gives him words of encouragement, he looks like he wants to kill her very <laughs> early in the movie. Ah, Wendy, Wendy, Wendy. Now, I have always been of the belief that all of the later Kubrick films are flawed because of casting. That everything after A Clockwork Orange, I do have problems with, largely because he goes with sort of a milk toast character that's supposed to represent innocence, I think, but who just ends up getting on my nerves. And maybe it's Ryan O'Neill, maybe it's Tom Cruise, maybe it's Matthew Modine. Shelley Duvall. Does anyone not want to see her get an axe in the head? <laughs> He's large! <laughs> when do we get to do the Popeye retrospective? <laughs> I got things to say! <laughs> We, they are remaking it. I will hold you to that and see if you want to go back. But, uh, yes, she is forever olive oil. It was released the same summer that this movie was. She, of course, shot this movie first before she did that. But she had largely been a ensemble actor in Robert Altman films. She was relatively inexperienced on professional, traditional film sets. She is Kubrick's choice. And I believe Kubrick chooses her because... She is a woman that he would like to punish very, very much, and did. On the set, many people talk about how she received the worst treatment. It's her meekness. I think it's what's so strange about horror movies. Typically, I think of the virginal woman as being the hero, right? She's the one that's going to live to the end. She's the one we're rooting for when everyone else does bad and gets an axe. But here, I actually believe her wholesomeness makes her the most contemptible. 
I, I don't know if I'll call her contemptible, but I get mixed messages in this film. Late into the film, when Grady is reprimanding Jack for letting this woman, she's more powerful than you. I wish I could believe that. I wish that it was anything more than sheer luck that Shelley Duvall, Wendy, was getting the upper hand in here. And I think that, again, I wish there was a better character arc with Jack. I think that would make a better film if this woman, if I actually believed that she was a threat to her husband, that she could step up and knock him out with a baseball bat. We'll talk about that a little bit more, about whether or not she is dangerous. But when I watched this movie before, I take her characterization as being authentic for a 70s wife. My parents are older than most of the parents in my generation. I had a stay-at-home housewife who cowed to a authoritative paternal figure in our house, and when he would rage, she would be defensive, but she would also be meek and deferential. It is, I think, in some ways, a realistic scenario of the I'll stand by my man kind of wife that I think pretty much ended in the 70s. When the divorce rate hit 50% and abuse came to the fore, everybody just started leaving their husbands. But back then, I would take this portrayal. And I'm going to just say I don't think she's toxic. Do I like her character? No. But do I think Duvall give something in a performance that I don't like or that another actress could have given a better performance. Another actress could have given a stronger performance. That's not what Kubrick wanted. Yeah, I agree with you, Arnie. That There is something that feels authentic to the time with her coming out of the 70s, you know, when things were really just starting to change. And I think that's what a lot of this movie is about is the American landscape changing. And do we accept that change or do we try to hold on to the past? But if they reshot this today, or maybe next week when it's in 97, if she comes off the same way in the 90s, it wouldn't work as well as it does coming out at the time it came out. The next one is King through and through. If this one, King says, isn't his vision, the next one was King's baby beginning to end. And King does not like this portrayal, because in his book, Wendy was a strong, beautiful woman who could stand on her own, but was trying to make the marriage work. King has gone on record calling Shelley Duvall's character the most misogynistic portrayal of woman in cinema. You could go that route. I certainly understand it. It certainly is backwards. You say it's true of the time. I think it, at the time she would be judged very harshly by other women. She has no career aspirations. When we meet her, she is an apologist for child abuse. She spends her time largely in the kitchen serving a man who is doing nothing. I think that it is a very 50s of a housewife that in the 70s and certainly by 1980 would have been seen as ridiculous. How she works in this movie for me now is she seems like a child. Her only friend is Danny. The person that she talks to is a six-year-old boy. She doesn't have friends of her own. She doesn't have, you know, gal pals to go out and, and blow off steam with. She is as much a child as Danny is. They're both subservient to Jack. It really sets up a power dynamic that's scary once Jack loses his mind. And if you know housewives, stay-at-home moms that just stay at home with their kids, I know it's rare today, but I know some. Yeah, that is, their kids become everything, and they almost do become childlike when they're around their kids, because that's who they're talking to all day. Again, I think you're saying this seems like the 50s. I, I think this still goes on, maybe even today. It's just not accepted as a norm. And I think it's a pretty good portrayal of it. 
Yeah, no, I agree. She got nominated for a Razzie, and I think that's unfair. She gave the performance that Kubrick was looking for. At the time, for many years, I would look at this movie and try to understand why he was looking for such a neurotic waif, physically unattractive, those bug eyes that... Those teeth! Yeah, the teeth, exactly. And the clothes don't help either. I mean, if she's not (laughs) out of the womb attractive, they're certainly doing nothing to airbrush her up. That's what I mean. Kubrick has designed her to be tortured. And indeed, she is. I mean, she really goes through it. Kubrick made her do a lot of takes, and she spends most of the movie weeping. He did this to her. I mean, many of the other actors had scenes where they didn't have to go to this emotional range. Here, I think she just had to spend a year screaming and and sobbing. And, I, you know, it's, it is effective. But you're right. It is not sympathetic. I am not on her side. And I think that female doctor, you see the look on her face where she can't believe she's judging this woman for sitting there and, and being like, oh, yeah, it was just one of those things when my husband got drunk and dislocated Danny's shoulder. I mean, it is. I, I think you're wrong. I don't think that this would have been acceptable at the time at all. I think Wendy goes in looking bad and ends up looking worse. No, no, no. I'm not saying acceptable. I'm saying it was it wasn't abnormal. That's always been a thing in films and storytelling. You know, the wife who's tried to protect her family, even though it's an abusive relationship. Yes, we recognize that as pathetic. She is a pathetic character. I'm saying it does have some authenticity to me, though. And if you look at that story, yes, the doctor is horrified because she's hearing about it for the first time. But this was three years ago that this arm was broken. And the story ends with Jack hasn't had a drink since. So, yes. It was horrible three years ago, but it was when Jack was an alcoholic. Jack has supposedly stopped drinking. Now, later in the movie, Jack gets a drink and says, it's been five months on the wagon. So I think he's been sneaking drinks for two and a half years. I I think that's an inconsistency. I think sometimes it's been three years and sometimes it's been five months. Yeah, I I took it as Jack lying. That was my read of it. But if you look at it from Wendy's point of view, Jack was still drinking and still beating. Yes, she becomes a contemptible, horrible person who just needs to stand up for herself or at least for her child. But, well, maybe not contemptible and horrible, but very, very pathetic at best. He stopped drinking. She's working on repairing the relationship. I take it as loyalty and optimism more than anything contemptible. Jack is clearly the star, but I still feel that what I, the character I really gravitate towards is still Danny, even though I am no longer Danny's age. He is the one, I gotta say, if you were watching this the first time, had no idea what the plot was, wouldn't you think he's the evil one? Particularly coming out of a decade where we had had The Omen and Rosemary's Baby and It's Alive, wouldn't he just be another one of those spooky, creepy kids that's gonna do something bad? Yeah, especially with that voice he uses for Tony. Mm. And the finger wag. I used to love that as a kid. I grew up a little bit after 70s cinema, so looking back, I could see where you might think that. I've never once thought that, because I didn't see those movies until the 90s when I was in my 20s. But to me, because of the age and everything else, he comes off as the innocent, the psychic power. You look in King's work, how many super-powered children do we have? He started with Carrie. We're going to get to Firestarter. But yeah, precisely. Carrie Firestarter. They ended up being real problems for people. But sympathetic characters in their own way. And Firestarter, we'll talk about how big of a problem she was. I I think she could claim (laughs) self-defense. 
to become in what another year? I think maybe two. We gotta see. Maybe two. (laughs) That's true. But when you look at superpowered children in King's work, Children of the Corn is the big exception. I think by and large they're the good guys and. When I saw this in the early 80s, yeah, it's like you say, he's Elliot. He's a goonie. It's the difference in when you saw it. Yeah, coming out of the 70s, he looks like Damien. By 1985 on after, yeah, he is the star of a Spielberg movie. But we really don't understand what's going on with him. This whole idea of Tony, we know that it's more than just an imaginary friend because it shows him things, and we get a sense of what is at the hotel waiting for them. We get those quick flash shots of the elevator of blood and the twins and and all of that that's coming, even before they get to the Overlook. We know that what's waiting for them. That blood elevator is an astonishing visual. It is just amazing how well it holds up even today. I see that and that is just a great image. It's one that they're going to lean back on. They use, they know that footage is good. They're going to play it three or four times. But I watched the trailer on the Blu-ray, and that's all the trailer was. Was yeah. that blood <laughs> elevator? That's all it needs to be. You see that? I'm in the theater. <laughs> I agree. How would you not see that movie after that trailer? It's one of the best trailers I've ever seen, and it shows you nothing of the movie other than that shot. Is it a miniature, or did they really flood a room? I thought it was a miniature based upon how everything moved, but everything I'm reading is they flooded a room twice. Wow. That was very expensive blood makeup. That wasn't colored water or Cairo syrup. They bought the blood used mostly for close-ups of wounds in makeup by the gallon and just pumped it through and then cleaned it up and did it again. It was one of the few things done in only two takes in the movie. But Danny has images of the daughters and blood and everything that's to come. He's never told by Jack, right? I mean, we don't know for sure, but my presumption is Jack doesn't go home and go, Wendy, you won't believe it. This hotel had the last caretaker hacking up his family. They don't know what they're in for because Jack withholds, right? We don't know. I mean, we see him driving up there for that interview where we hear the whole story. And while he's at the interview is when... Danny has his first vision. She talks to the doctor. I don't know if he comes back and tells her if he withholds, because the next time we see the family unit together, he's already come home, they've packed, and they're on the way to the Overlook. And I don't know if he's lying when he says, she loves horror movies and ghost stories. (laughs) (laughs) She sure doesn't see any ghosts for most of the movie. My sense is that they're going into this blind, that he hasn't prepped them for any of it. Well, at least Wendy is. Danny has seen something. We don't know if he remembers it. He does say in Tony voice, I believe, that he knows his dad got the job. But yeah, Wendy, I know, is going in there totally blind. Danny, I never know how much he remembers or if he knows what any of it means. He doesn't even know about this power yet. He just knows he's got this voice and he sees things. It's not until he gets to the hotel that he really finds out what's going on. But I think that just because he's had the power for three years, he knows he knows things. He, kn- I mean, he knows that his dad got the job and doesn't question if it's, he's right or not. He knows that he has some kind of second sight, even if he doesn't know the name. But he's never had to encounter evil spirits over an Indian burial ground before. Right. If indeed he is. Because I think a big question we're going to have about how you see The Shining, that if you are staying in Kubrick's Hotel or King's Hotel, is whether there are real ghosts there or whether it is a Donner Party situation where neurotic people turn on each other because that's what happens when they get snowed in for a month. 
But we're all in agreement. There has to be a supernatural element here. He has to be psychic because the dead never put those thoughts into his head. He would have no way of knowing about the hacked up girls other than through Tony. Yeah, he saw all that stuff while his dad was still doing the interview. And I did question this because I have looked and examined this movie from those ways. Is there a psychic power in this movie? In the book, clearly there is. He uses it to glean thoughts from his parents. Here, Danny's psychic power is very strangely used and does come mostly in visions, but the one thing that really tipped me off is that he does contact Dick later in the movie psychically. So, yes, Danny is supernatural. He has the ability to project thoughts and to see things that are happening. He knows his dad got the job. It's not just a lucky guess. Diane Johnson, the co-writer of the script, said that Kubrick and her really did try to make that as ambiguous as possible, but she admitted there were times in this, we'll point them out, where you have no other choice but to conclude it's supernatural. But how supernatural it is is something else I want to discuss. Again, ghosts or what have you. But yes, I think that this would be a failure as a horror movie. If you could walk out of there with a real world, it was all a dream, Jacob's Ladder type explanation for the whole thing. I think I would like it a lot less. I like the fact that even if it's not going completely with King's explanation for what's happening, if it's going to be ambiguous, at least we all have to admit there's more in Heaven and the Overlook than exists in our philosophy. I just want to comment, as they're going to the Overlook, gorgeous freaking camera work. Absolutely gorgeous. These aerial shots following the Volkswagen bug up the road. I'm heading to Montana next year. And it's not just this gorgeous aerial view. I love the music. You know, we talked about Jack Nicholson. He gives it away that this is a horror movie. Well, so does this score. I mean, this bomb, bomb. It's so foreboding. But you know what? If you're going in, hey, I want to be scared. This music, as you see this little car going up this windy mountain, it really sets the mood. This was the music they played when you entered the Kubrick exhibit. And boy, was I so excited that. And yeah, I, I do love the music. Again, worth pointing out. Most of it is not original. It is classic composers, Bella Bartok, Christoph Pindarecki. The stuff that's original is right at the start here, this kind of Moog synthesizer stuff. But for the most part, this was all stuff that pre-existed that Kubrick selected to be in this film. The original score was scrapped. You know, a defining characteristic for me for Kubrick is always his use of camera. It's a tough call, but I think that if gun to head, I had to pick his best-looking film, this is it for me. This is the one whose images burn deepest into my head. I really feel like Kubrick as image maker is at the top of his game in The Shining. The way that they photograph this is unlike anything before. There's never been a horror movie that used this steady cam technique where you have these endless shots this very bright lighting. I mean, how many horror movies can you say that don't have shadows in it? Bright lighting, corridors that go on and on. The star of this movie is not Jack Nicholson. It is Kubrick and his camera here. It is just a phenomenal piece of photography. I'll half agree. The star is still Jack Nicholson, but this is Kubrick's most gorgeous film that I've seen and one of the best-looking horror films of all time. Now, I think... These days, a lot of this would be taken for granted because the Steadicam technique's so new back then, now you can watch on weekly procedurals. But the way it's shot, the depth, the fact that I couldn't believe this. I honestly thought they took a hotel over to shoot this. 
The fact that all of this was built in Elstree Studios over in London, none of this is real. These are all gigantic sets that have depth just for the sake of having depth and not because they need to fit an X-Wing in them, is incredible set design and photographed so well. I was just so happy to have the Blu-ray of this where they did the color correction. I've never seen the film look as good as it did on this new Blu-ray. Just fucking gorgeous. Yeah, one thing about the camera work here, you said the steady cam, Stuart. You notice how much this camera is moving. We're not doing shaky cam, we're steady, but this camera always seems to be moving. Is it a ghost following these characters? Is it us following these characters? When there are static shots, they really stand out to me because it calls out how much this camera is just moving around, following these characters, going all over this hotel. Yeah, which is just a big set piece, a big sound, multiple sound stages. It's a big maze. I think the intent is to, even though they have a hedge maze out front, the whole thing is a maze, and we get lost in it, and I love it for that. I mean, if you're going to design an incomplete mystery where everyone's invited to have their own adventure, I think, yeah, let's all go play in this maze. There's so much to see here, and the way that it's taken in, it's just terrific. The shot that I remembered most before coming back to this is Danny on his big wheel. And the camera following him around and the sound of those shots and just the way that it takes you through. I'll hand it to Kubrick. You know, I started off saying that I don't love everything he does. But I would say that 99 times out of 100, if we were watching a film with long languishing shots of a little boy riding a big wheel through a hotel time and time again, I'd be the one sitting here going, when the fuck are we getting to the story? But the visuals, the score... The sound design here is drawing me in. I'd almost use the word like hypnotic. I didn't feel time when I was watching The Shining for this review. I just was in the overlook with the Torrances and experiencing this film. I had a real hard time judging pacing. And when I went back with the commentary, I was able to mark some time notes. When watching this and experiencing the film... You're just in it, and the camera's moving, and I'm moving with it. It keeps everything feeling kinetic. If you just set the camera still, it would feel like these long, boring scenes. Yeah, the camera work makes this hotel a character. And I think, from what I've heard, that is something from Stephen King's novel, that the hotel, you know, it's got a much more active role. But I feel like, you know, just like when we talked about Die Hard, that first one, and how that building was a character, and we really felt the layout. I feel like Kubrick's doing that here. He's setting up the Overlook as another character. We'll learn from different characters that even places could have The Shining. And so, yeah, we're this is just another character we're being introduced to now. Absolutely essential for me for loving horror movies since a place, and I can't think of one that did it better. You're right. It's art direction, too. Yeah, these are sets. God knows if they had rented out a hotel and shot for a year, it would be the most expensive movie of all time. They had to go and build it somewhere else, and Kubrick did. He wanted to cherry pick. He wouldn't have been satisfied setting up location at one hotel. He had people go out and take photos of every hotel in the country, picked his favorite rooms, assembled them, and said, this is my hotel. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to the Madonna Inn or heard of it in San Luis Obispo, but it's oh, yeah. it's just this crazy hotel. Every room's different. I've stayed there a few times. It's real fun. I get that vibe when I'm watching this. you got the bright red bathrooms and the gold room and the, this green, gorgeous bathroom later on. I mean, every room feels like it's from another place, but it, Arnie, you're right. It is hypnotizing. It draws you in and it gives it a sense of place and style and character. 
And you talked about how the building can shine, and we're told that because of Dick Halloran, played by the Scat Man, Jazz from the animated Transformers film. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we have covered him before. I was thinking this was the first time. Now, I gotta say, this is one of those cliches I normally don't like so much. I mean, the, the magical Negro, as it has been defined, is just something, it's just unfortunate that we always have these black characters that are mystical and magical. Native Americans get this a lot, too, but that we have a minority character who exists primarily to, to inspire the white people to embrace the magic around them. It's not my favorite trope. I'll put it that way. But, I'll give him this. Scatman is an instantly lovable presence. He's warm in a movie that is largely ice cold. I love that he is here, even though Kubrick doesn't really love that he's here. Yeah, I called out King in my Books and Nachos review for that same thing of the mystical black man. I'm torn on it, because in the book, he is a stronger character with a far more active role. And it's not like he's the only mystical character in the book or in this movie. It just so happens that he's black. Kubrick actually had recast him as a white man, but then couldn't get the actor. And Scatman was one of the last people hired three weeks before they started shooting. And made him pay for it. Yes, Slim Pickens, if you saw Dr. Strangelove, the guy that rode the bomb down to the ground, that was who he wanted. And it was Jack Nicholson's friend. I mean, Jack Nicholson is the one that said, use my friend Scatman. And Kubrick did not like working with him, felt that he was old and forgetful, couldn't get his lines done. And the scenes with the most takes done are the ones with Scatman. Yeah, he does bring the warmth to this film. Everyone is cold and distant. This is a character that that's fun to watch and and does bring some life to this this film. It's uh, as in warmth, not that this film is boring or anything. Just he's an interesting character to me. I I could watch a whole film with Scatman, a whole shining spinoff with just him, or just the Transformers. <laughs> no, I listened to that review. I agree with you, Jacob. I'd say my number one performance in this movie is clearly Nicholson, and we haven't even gotten to the places where he'll do it, but number two is Scatman. I read the same things you did, Stuart, about a hundred and some odd takes. The Guinness Book of World Records would have the scene between Scatman and Danny in the kitchen as the most takes ever, and the scene where he gets axed later on, it was just cruel. I mean, Kubrick, even for the people who revere him, I think have to admit he's an asshole. And he just made him suffer physical injury for no good reason, and also his emotional abuse of Duvall. But despite everything he suffered, Scatman comes across as a very human and warm and realistic character in this movie, and I like him a lot. The prevailing theory is why he did this to Scatman was he wanted him to quit. He Slim Pickens wasn't available when they started shooting this, but this thing took a year to shoot. So by the time that we they were getting to Scatman scenes, they did shoot in order and doing, you know, 40, 50 takes of every shot and then doing other shots. I think that at some point Slim Pickens was available and Kubrick was counting on the fact that he could get Scatman to break down and quit. It's a testament that even though Scatman goes through hell here, and is crying. If you've seen the behind-the-scenes footage made the documentary about the making of this movie, they asked him what he thought of it, and tears are rolling down his face spontaneously when he's thinking about the experience here. It was tough on him. I think just as tough as it was on Duvall. And we're grateful that he endured it and is in the finished film. 
I agree, although I have also heard rumors that there were a lot of crocodile tears coming out of Scatman just to get things over with. <laughs> he might be a better actor than even we credit him. <laughs> that tends to happen when you're on your 50th take. <laughs> but I really do love that scene. If it took 144 takes to achieve, fine, so be it. That scene between he, him and Danny... It's comforting at first. You know, he's trying to tell you, you don't have to be afraid of The Shining. We've been afraid of The Shining. Every time that he's shined, he's had seizures. We've seen things we don't want to see. You don't have to be afraid of them. They're burnt toast. I love that analogy. I think, oh, that's so nice. And then they have that amazing cut, and we see the knives over the kid's face. I love the way that this unfolds, and I love the way that it starts out feeling warm, like Scatman can put a happy face on this place, and then it gradually goes back into, don't you ever go into room 237. Room 237, 217 in the book. The hotel that they modeled the outside on asked it to be changed, because they thought they'd never rent that room again. Isn't that crazy? I would That'd so stay in that room. Popular. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You need to market that. In fact, in the movie screening that I saw, there was a hotel ad. They didn't have any previews before the movie, but there was a hotel ad in which they were promoting that you could find haunted hotels on their website. <laughs> I'm sure that hotel has made a room 237. But this hotel, let's discuss its background a little bit. It's said here that it's built on an Indian burial ground, I want to put out that is something Kubrick or his co-writer added that is not in King's original book. So many people say it is. I've even read people go, yeah, that's something King uses again and again. The Shining Pet Cemetery. No, no, just Pet Cemetery. And you know what? I never got a sense that that was really true, that they really n knew that. You get Ullman, the manager for this hotel as he's taking Jack around. He just kind of throws it out. I think that's part of the mystery. I don't know if that's a reliable source. Yeah, it's part of the lore. They have a Colorado room that has uh, Navajo and Apache motifs in it. It certainly is a part of the history here. He's proud of this long history. He's walking them through the corridors. It's a way of, you know, talking up this place. It's been around since the Indians were here, and they were even attacked while they were being built. But how much weight do you give that? Do you feel like, okay, that the ghost here, I mean, I didn't see any headdresses. I saw a lot of flappers, but I don't feel like the ghosts here, at least, they're not the Manitou. I kind of just think that the way that it's dropped, that it's on an Indian burial ground, and I'm coming at this retroactively, right? But all I'm thinking of, you only move the headstones! And Pet cemetery graveyards are places of spiritual power, so... If you built this on a graveyard, it is a place that is already psychically abundant, for lack of a better term. And so I take that as part of the reason why this hotel has spirits when bad shit will happen in every hotel. Why the Overlook? And the way I took it, you know, they, Scatman says that a place could have the shining. And uh, this place, what does this place embody? At least to me... It embodies kind of this white affluence that, you know, when we see pictures from the 20s, it's all white people. There are these drop lines about fighting Indians. To me, th this is Kubrick making a statement about, you know, this white affluence, this past that America has been built on. And, and so it has created this evil spirit, this evil take, this evil version of The Shining upon it. Hey, Jacob, if you can go on for nine more minutes about that, I think they'll include you in room 237 part two. 
I, I got more. I mean, I'll I'll get into it. I get that, and I like these interpretations. Don't get me wrong, but to me, I don't feel like the Overlook is haunted. I feel like it's a character, but I think it becomes haunted because the people that are there have this power. The people that see the spirits are Scatman and Danny and Jack. I believe Jack has the shining. I am right there with you, Stuart. I was going to ask you guys, maybe in the book, does he have The Shining? And I feel like it was his drinking that kind of stopped it. That's how he coped with it. Again, when we get that talk between Danny and Dick, Dick says, oh, people, you know, they grow up with it and they do things. They they deny it. They forget about it. And I always felt there's this scene on Thursday. We get these title cards throughout the film letting us, you know, it's kind of like a countdown to something. And on Thursday, it's mostly just given to Jack looking out at the snow, his wife and child out there, doing that great Jack Nicholson look, you know, eyes up. And also <laughs> standard Kubrick shot as well, you know, the low angle from the camera. And, and you get that high-pitched buzzing sound, and that's a sound that's associated when someone's using The Shining. So I always felt like, at least when I'm watching this, that Jack did have it, and that it was actually his drinking that got rid of it. And once he stopped drinking, it's it's starting to come back. It's starting to affect him when he's here in this hotel. I didn't catch that sound effect. That could very well be the reason why he sees ghosts, if indeed there are ghosts. And I'm going to argue that this all could be in Jack's mind. 100% of this could be in Jack's mind, and because we all have said that Danny is psychic, Danny could see what Jack is seeing, getting it from his mind. They have a link. I do feel that much is true, however you want to spend it. My take was that they both had the same power and, and dealt with it a different way. I'm, I'm with you, Jacob. I thought that the drinking was coping, and that as he started to probe his mind for creative ideas, what he really did was summon evil upon himself. For me, the way it passes between child and son is that ball. You know, when he's creatively stumped, Jack starts throwing a tennis ball against the wall. Well, what comes out of room 237 at Danny right before he's attacked by a ghost? It's that same ball. I feel like in using that motif, we see that the same source is beckoning them. Jack's need to be creative and Danny's need to shine. Now, I am heavily influenced because I did read this book for Books and Nostras beforehand. I see a lot of what you guys are saying in this, but yet I also see a lot of King's original intent here. And what King wrote, and what also can be seen here and is my first interpretation, and it meshes with my childhood straightforward interpretation of this, is that Danny is a powerful psychic, the hotel wants Danny, but Jack is the easiest to corrupt and take control of. And the hotel wants to kill Danny so that Danny will be added to its ghost repertoire and be the most powerful and really up its capabilities and powers. And because Danny is there, the hotel is able to do things it's never been able to do for previous guests because Danny is so strong in the shining. But Jack is the one who is most easily corrupted, and they can whisper in his ear and through offers of drink and offers of success, make him their agent. You know, that might make sense, Arnie. I, I kind of like that take that it's maybe it's working through Danny, but it's affecting Jack. Because one of the things I still don't get is we get the story of Charles Grady, this guy who chopped up his family in 1970. But when we meet Grady, he's got a different first name. It's always confused me. Maybe it's, it's, I don't know, it, it's filtering things through minds and it's getting it mixed up as it reconfigures it for Jack. 
Ah, yes, the Grady connection. That is, the other big interpretation here, completely separate from King, is reincarnation. That Delbert Grady was a worker at the hotel, and then his ancestor, Shirtdale Relation, became the caretaker and killed his family. And that big photo at the end, did A. Torrance, an ancestor who looked just like Jack Torrance, work at the hotel in 21? Is that why when Jack talks about the deja vu, he has that? Was he a reincarnation or an ancestor of someone who worked in that hotel and was very prominent in 1921? That is a possibility there and would explain why Grady has different names. That could be a continuity error. I just want to put it out there. They shot for a year. Maybe the script continuity person got something messed up on there. I think there are a lot of things that are like that in this movie. Chairs that are in one shot that aren't, or bear rugs or something. Is it intentional? I think we'd like to attribute the idea that Kubrick, being the perfectionist that he is, would see these things as he cut the movie together. He allows them to be there because he wants them to play with your mind. But yes, is Delbert Grady Charles Grady, or are they two different people? Are they mirror images? Because there's a whole kind of mirrors twins thing going on here. Or is it Charles Delbert Grady? I mean, we find out in the book that Tony, (laughs) it turns out Danny's full name is Daniel Anthony Torrance. Right, I agree. Stewart is not a reliable narrator. And again, I gotta say, never trust a Stewart in a movie. They're always a schmuck or a loser or, or something. It's just a curse with my name. But yeah, the guy that hires Jack Nicholson, he got a lot of things wrong. He called him Charles. Maybe it wasn't Charles. He said the guy had uh daughters that were eight and ten. They're clearly twins. They're the same age. Uh, while we're discussing the theories, I will tell you the explanation that kind of I had when I first saw this movie at the ripe age of eight or nine, and that King wrote in the book, is that time ceases to matter in the overlook. And so the reason there can be a party from the 20s, and King also has stuff going on from the 40s and the 50s and things all at once, is that the overlook is timeless. And so that whole picture at the end that Jack Torrance was in the 20s, in the 70s, in the 80s, all at once, and could have become part of the hotel's cadre of ghosts by having died in that maze. That is another explanation, is that it's all just psychic energy that is irrespective of the actual date. Yeah, and it's a thing with King, it's also a thing with Kubrick. I want to point out that Kubrick likes to tell stories in which characters ultimately return to their roots, 2001 being its most literal, return to a womb-like state. Kubrick was born in the 20s, and I do think he sees himself as being like Jack Nicholson. I do feel like Jack's journey is very much like his trying to conjure the story and corral his actors into making a horror film. But I do have to wonder, you know, I always took this movie as Jack was crazy from the start. And we've been saying Jack is crazy from the start. What does Jack do that's quite so wrong? I dare (laughs) say that until he's accosted with a baseball bat, Jack does nothing except type craziness. (laughs) If you take it to mean that he did not have any involvement, he was truly asleep and that nothing that he was dreaming about or psychically doing or physically doing was hurting Danny in that room. Because we kind of really don't know what happened to Danny in room 237. We're told later, secondhand through Wendy, that it was a naked crazy lady. 
if it was indeed a naked crazy lady and not some secret desire of Jack Nicholson, then I suppose you're right. Or Danny himself is also the option there because Danny has had seizures and has this alternate persona. If Danny perceives he's being strangled, could Danny, could Tony strangle Danny? Hmm, that's interesting. I had never considered that. But yeah, Tony has been scary to me. So yeah, maybe he is uh, someone that would goad him to hurting himself. That's honestly, I'd never consider that, but it is probably worth considering the next time I watch. Yeah, one of the inconsistencies for me is Dick tells Danny that these are images. They they can't do anything, but obviously something happened. Was it a seizure and he was thrashing around and hurt himself? Was it the actual ghost? I mean, we see them interacting with these ghosts or these psychic projections or images in their mind, whatever you want to call them, but we never see them have an actual effect on them except with Danny, but we don't see that either. He just walks out and has a scraped up neck and a torn sweater. Yeah, and is that Kubrick wanting to hold the scare of the naked gross lady, or is that more ambiguity? In the book, they were all pictures that couldn't hurt anyone, until Danny showed up with his power, and then not only does a naked lady strangle him, but hedge animals come to life and start attacking, and they can very much hurt you. They didn't just need Jack in the real world, although he was their biggest agent. They would be able to hurt you directly. But here, yeah, we all we see are these pictures in a book of those two creepy fucking twins. I Oh my god. And... Then the blood in the elevator. I want to look at this from all sides. I think Jack doesn't do anything until his wife comes at him with a baseball bat. But, you know, isn't that her finally standing up to their past? I feel like, Stuart, you said this is Kubert going back to his past. I feel like this is dealing with something about the past, confronting the past. And there is this past history where Jack did abuse Danny. He dislocated his shoulder. Now, maybe we believe this more if Shelley Duvall seemed like a woman that could stand up for herself. She she does seem so timid. But isn't this her being proactive and coming to terms with the past and not letting her husband get away with it again? Or is it her suffering cabin fever and starting to kill her family? She does kind of come off crazy during this scene. Yeah, she has, for an hour of this movie, apologized for everything that Jack has done. And when he snaps at her and says, get the fuck out, and all the, all the abuse that he throws at her. And it's pretty quick. I mean, a month into this, he should not be so jumpy. But he is really vicious very early into this living arrangement here. When she finally stands up and accuses him, she's actually wrong. <laughs> She's grabbing Danny and said, you did this, and backing away. I mean, yeah, that's her neurosis. It's not even the truth. She is making the wrong assumption based on the past. The ghosts are playing on a past history to hope that she will turn against her husband. If there are ghosts. If there are ghosts, yes. I, th- I think we need to conclude that there are ghost-like apparitions who may or may not be the unconscious desires of the characters. Whether they are have real reality to them or they're metaphor, I do feel like there are agents of... Eve. I mean, we see them, yes. There are little girls covered in blood. There is a creepy old lady in room 237. Yeah, I do think these are projections. Maybe it's the ghost responding to the people seeing, but they do seem to project something from the characters, and they seem to be more benevolent, or at least better looking, the more evil you are. When Jack, you know, when he first confronts the naked woman in room 237 in the bathroom, she's beautiful, but then she turns ugly, and Jack's still struggling with where he's going. But then the rest of it, there are these nice ballrooms and bartenders and GVs, 
But when Danny sees these projections or these ghosts, they're scary. When Wendy eventually sees them, they're scary. The only thing, though, that I can say is, if you look at it, the only time you see a ghost is when there's a mirror visible. Whenever Jack is talking to a ghost or seeing the ghosts, he's always around mirrors. So are these ghosts actually people from the past, or is Jack hallucinating? Is he having a delusion of these people being there? And if we were to walk in, it would be him talking to himself like Fight Club. I think that's a credible interpretation. I I noticed the mirrors early on when he's sitting in bed and Wendy's talking to him. But when it shows him, it's his reflection. It never shows him sitting in the bed, just the mirror reflecting him sitting in the bed. Well, we're literally shown that in the movie. It's one of the nice edits. Kubrick, a masterful editor, as well as a... As a cinematographer but the way that we are introduced to the bartender and he's having a drink and then we step out of it when wendy comes running in with the bat and says oh i was wrong there's a crazy lady in room 237 i think that yes we see an example where that is exactly the case the ghosts are something that only he can see again my take on this is that's because he has the shining and he doesn't know it and that he's summoning these things to him my sense is There's a lot of ghosts in hotels. They could have gone to any hotel in the country and been snowed in and had a similar experience. These particular ghosts that they're seeing are coming to them because there's aspects of their personality that they're gravitating to. I mean, I think that that's why they don't meet a different kind of ghost here. The fact that they see a scary lady in a tub and hacked up twins and all of that is because these are in some ways mirror images of themselves. And again, having reread the King book, in that, it's explained the the hotel feeds on negative energy. There are no happy ghosts. There's no happy hooker ghost that's going to get you laid. The, the <laughs> ghosts are there to fuck you over and kill you. It's specific to the Overlook. The Overlook shines. If they went to the Hojo in Boulder, it's not going to have the ghosts waiting for them the way the Overlook does built on the burial ground. I'll put the are there ghosts issued to bed because of one thing? And that's at one point, Jack is locked in a pantry on the inside and it's unlocked from the outside. And only a ghost, or I did read a theory that Danny Torrance in Tony mode was (laughs) unlocking it based upon his father's psychic suggestion. But realistically, I'm more inclined to believe a ghost unlocked that door, thus taking away the possibility that this is all in Jack's head. And that's right. Diane Johnson did admit to this. She's co-screenwriter, and she said this is where they just stopped in the writing process, and they realized, okay, there's ghosts. They wanted to have ambiguity, but that was the moment where they realized and recognized they needed to say there are ghosts here. But I don't think that takes away anything from what did these ghosts, projections, whatever, what do they mean? What are they symbolizing? Why is it that Jack has this old-timey take? Why does he go back to the 20s? Why does Wendy see an elevator full of blood and a furry giving a blowjob? What is with the furry? I, I need to talk about this furry because that is the single strangest image in a... All right, it's in the book, too, but... Wow. In this movie, is that not fucking creepy? I was so delighted to see that there was a source of this. It's a dog costume, and it's a little bit more detailed in the book, but there is a literary root to this very random incident. 
as a child, this was always one of the most alarming scenes because Winnie the Pooh had just come to life. I mean, that's what I thought. It was an evil Winnie the Pooh. I had no idea what a blowjob was when I saw this and would not have understood the suggestiveness of this. But yes, that suit has an ass that has a flap that is open and he is leaning into a man. I don't know how he could pleasure him with the mask on. Clearly, the suggestion is that these are two guys getting it on. And even in the book, though, it's random. Even in the book, it is explained that the guy who for a while owned the hotel was bisexual and that there was a guy in a dog costume who was trying to get with him again. But it doesn't play into the ghosts of the Overlook. It's still kind of out of the blue bisexuality. But here, seeing that inserted into this movie, no pun intended, was really weird. (laughs) You know what? It actually helped me in this viewing, this last viewing that I had, come to see how much of these ghosts are projections of Wendy's neurosis. Really think about it. All the ghosts that we meet, the male ghosts are collaborators. We like them. They seem nice. They're conspiring, of course, to get you to do evil, but they're not going to hurt you. Anytime we see a vision that is frightening, that is out to get you, it's female. It's the twin girls. It's the woman in the tub. Or in this case, yeah, it's sexuality as it appears to Wendy. I could see a case really being made that, yes, Kubrick has some real issues here with needy women. And keep in mind, he had spent several years staying at home, doing domestic chores, not working after Barry Lyndon failed. I think that he was coming out of a real domestic hell when he made this movie. So I guess the elevator full of blood is just a big menstrual symbol. (laughs) Go with it. I like it. Keep going. Yeah, maybe. But I do. I really do feel like the frighteningness of these ghosts is played on their being needy women. Come play with us. Come screw me. You know, there's just something about these female ghosts that are seducers and grabbers and and monsters. If Wendy weren't so fucked up, if he had left Wendy behind and was just staying there with Danny, I don't know that the ghosts would have come to them in this way. Is the woman in room 237 the wife that was axed up? Or was she something else, someone that drowned in a tub and had killed herself or something? I I always presumed that the Grady family stayed in room 237 and thus everything originated from there. Everything spiraled out. It was the center of the maze, if you will. Oh, I never took her as that even before I read the King book. I think she was too old. I took the old rotted corpse. You take away the rot. I take that to be her true perception. And as a caretaker... I always figured Grady slept in the same room that the Torrances did. Yeah, but Ullman drops a line where that's where they could stay, but they could really go to any room they want and sleep in. You know, we get that line where Grady had chopped up his family and stacked them in a room. And so, yeah, I'm with you, Stuart. I always assumed that room was 237 where these bodies were stacked. Though with this old lady, we never see her chopped up. The twins, we see, you know, their heads chopped and blood running down. This old woman, yeah, she is just kind of decaying. Yeah, in the book, it was a woman who, an old woman who killed herself in the bathtub. Here, it's not explained, but I never thought she was a Grady. You know, in my childhood state, I was trying to make sense that this was all about the Grady's. Watching it now, I can see that there are various ghosts and that she is not related, that the twins are in a different part of the hotel. They clearly establish areas of the hotel. Where they were axed up is nowhere near this room 237, and room 237 cannot be the center of the maze. The center of the maze is the Colorado Room. It is where Jack has been doing all of his creative brainstorming and doing all of his work and no play, right? Yeah, I think all he's doing is a little handball. 
I had to pay attention as to when we first hear typing sounds, because I wanted to know, when did he go crazy? And who knows, maybe when he first was typing, it wasn't crazy. But, yeah, it only took a month. It was it was the one month later that he was he was writing. So, truly, we're to believe that they moved in on Halloween, and by Thanksgiving, he had lost his mind and was typing this nonsense. I did think that this all went about too quick, but then again, Jack seemed crazy from frame one, right? Yeah, this is really, if Jack was quote-unquote done right, this would be the big reveal, as Wendy goes through these papers and sees just the same line. I think it would really be a punch in the gut of the viewer if that was happening. You thought, oh, okay, he's this nice dad, and okay, maybe he's going a little bit crazy, but he's still cool, and then you see the same line typed over and over and over. I don't know. I read worse things for books and nachos. It's still better than E.T. and the Green Planet. (laughs) (laughs) I might have a promising career in writing movie spinoffs, truly. Don't give up yet, Jack. Keep going. And this is where I think Nicholson's performance hits number 10, right? I mean, he's been a little crazy the whole time, and some of the bar scenes were really good, but he's either played subdued, pissed off, or annoyed, or a little bit perplexed, like when Grady is wiping the schmutz off his jacket in the bathroom. But it's finally here in the Colorado room that Nicholson takes it way over the top. And this is why I say Nicholson is the star of this film, because when I think of The Shining, I think of nothing more than Nicholson's great lines, great delivery, great facial expressions, three little pigs, here's Johnny, all in this last act. Yeah, Wendy, darling, light of my life. And then he just goes off. It's so great. You know what? Forget what I said about Jack. Uh, It would have worked better when he's scary. When it gets here, this is full-on scare mode. I'm going with it. It's a great performance. Are you scared, though? Because the one thing I got to say between my childhood self watching this and my adult self watching this was as a child, this was the most terrifying thing I could ever imagine. I was just frightened of him as he stalked her up those stairs. Now, I really do feel like the third act of The Shining kind of plays like a dark comedy. I do feel like he's so over the top. Well, it's just crazy. It's just it's fun to watch what he's doing, and I like it for that. But I wouldn't say that it's like really scaring me. I find it unsettling even now as he goes on this last rampage through the hotel, chopping down doors it, with his craziness level turned up. I I think this is very effective. It's it's unsettling to me. Is that the same as scary? I don't know, but this is what I want in horror. I'll agree completely with Jacob. I think that this whole movie, there's ghosts in this. Does that make it horror? At this point, I would say it's been a very suspenseful, tense film. It's had a little bit of creepiness, which, again, part of the suspense with the camera work and the little girls and everything. I've been creeped out. But the scares come when the danger comes and the shrieks come. You get Danny screaming red rum like a siren. We haven't even talked about red rum, but I was so freaked out when I saw this again as a little child to find out red rum was murder. You see it in the mirror there. Danny is gone. Tony, the Tony persona takes over and is howling. And Wendy is shrieking. Nicholson with that awesome facial expression of just gleeful murder. This is off-putting. I stand alone then. I think it's campy. I I think that there's something kind of delightful about it. It's It's funny to me because it's Jack Nicholson being as crazy as he wants to be. And just nothing about this third act. I do put it as a 
problem I have with The Shining is that there's nothing about the third act that actually feels scary. Whereas up until this point, those scenes between Danny and Jack are scary. When he's hugging him and saying, I want to stay here forever and ever, genuinely willies. Up until that point, I feel like he really could hurt him. Now that he's doing Here's Johnny, I just feel like he's doing a bit. And it's just not scary to me. I I like it, and it's obviously what the movie's known for, but I do feel like it's a less of a horror movie in its third act. I felt the first two-thirds, it's been very suspenseful. It's pulled me in. I need a release, though. I want that release, and this is a hell of a release to me. Yeah, we needed something to happen here. We needed it to explode. And so much about what King wrote the plot has been thrown out. We were wondering what is going to trigger it. I think in the novel, it's much more clear the escalation of of why things are happening. Whereas here, it's just a random Thursday. I mean, we've been following the days, but who knows what date or time or why. It's just Thursday, time to get the axe. Here's Johnny. Do people even know who... Johnny Carson is that watch this movie now. Do they know it's a Carson catchphrase? I think that they're either thinking it's from this movie or Johnny Five. I think both are more. Johnny Five. No way. If you don't know who Johnny Carson is, you don't know who Johnny Five is. Come on. (laughs) I give this younger generation some credit. You say that until that short circuit reboot. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, I think that the catalyst is really the fact that Danny was attacked in room 237. I think that's what makes this Thursday the day. But it's been coming, and I was playing devil's advocate earlier saying that Jack really didn't do anything, because he didn't harm a soul. He didn't touch a hair on anybody's head. He just had imaginary drinks with ghosts until Wendy does clonk him with a baseball bat. But yeah, he's already had that conversation with Grady in the bathroom saying... You've got to correct your wife and son and that Danny is calling out. So I think that even if Danny hadn't been strangled or if Wendy hadn't brought the baseball bat, Jack was going to grab that axe. Yeah, and it should be pointed out that the reason why Wendy does get access to his writing, the what he's doing while she's reading the pages is going and disabling the snowcat. He is plotting this very attack on this day. So it was going to happen whether she instigated it by snooping or not. And this is where, again, my interpretation comes about, you know, Jack wanting to go towards that white affluent past and Wendy and her son and Dick being these signs of progress, civil rights, feminism, you know. When Grady tells Jack what Danny has done, it's they've called that cook, that inward cook. They they use that word here, and they say, oh, we underestimated Wendy. Maybe she's the stronger one. I, I really feel like they're poking at this white man, trying to, you know, really to get him to go crazy, get him to go into this past mode when where the white male was more affluent, and they've lost that sense of power now. I think you're going to piss off anyone by saying Wendy's more strong than they are. I mean... That's what the movie says. I'm not agreeing with that. It's what the ghosts are saying to get his goat. I think that even they would have a hard time making the case. But it's what they're saying in the Red Room. And I wanted to say that if I didn't know the secret, I think Red Rum, much like the shower scene and classic horror movie moments, is a spoiled surprise. But you might be inclined to think that Red Rum was the Red Room where this is all finally transpiring here, that bathroom scene. It's the longest scene in the whole movie, and it's really where you see Jack Nicholson come to the conclusion he has no other choice but to kill his family. 
Why red rum? I know that it's murder backwards, and I know this guy has a drinking problem. What was Tony really trying to say? I mean, going back to that mirrors, I, the, the, seeing things through the mirror, the, the shots of Jack, the mirror image of him when he's sitting on the bed. I, I think Tony has never spoken too clearly. He gives images, and here he seems to have fully possessed Danny by this point, and there seems to be no Danny in there. Yeah, I actually have the question of, does Danny ever return, or has he had a psychotic break, and there is no Danny, only Tony, and... Does Danny return in this movie? Does Danny return after this movie? Or is Danny now hiding in the belly? No, Danny comes back, and you can hear it in the voice. It's a, yeah. it's one of the things I love. But, it, you know, when Tony's there, it's red rum, red rum. And then it, later it goes up a couple octaves. He's like, red rum, red rum. That's him snapping out of it. Yeah, did they, did they mess with the audio? It sounds like yeah. they really tweaked it up there. He's coming out of it. That's actually, you're hearing Danny coming back into his body. At the high shriek is when he's gone, I thought. And I don't know, does Danny ever talk again after Jack gets the axe? He does come back to his normal voice right before Jack starts chopping at the door. Yeah, and he says mom at the end when he yeah. finally gets out of the maze. He, he recognizes his mother and embraces her. Yeah, I, I think he is Danny. Tony might have just stood there and watched it go down. Uh, maybe Tony is conspiring with this shining spirit. Who knows? Tony is a little suspect here, but he at least had the forethought. But Tony didn't want to go to the hotel. Tony tried to protect them all. So I don't, I don't see Tony as this complicit spirit. Yeah, I saw the whole red rum thing as trying to warn them that your dad's coming to murder you. So he's dyslexic. Well, yeah, I mean, th this whole thing with Tony works in images and this whole thing with Shining, I think it's something that Danny doesn't totally understand. And so Tony is a projection of who Danny is. So it does come out in these childlike ways where things are written backwards. Well, at least has the forethought of, of getting Dick Holleran on the horn. While all of this is going on, it should be said, the screen goes all the way down to Florida and gets Scatman Crothers back into the plot. And since Dick doesn't survive the film, can I get his pad with the... I used to have paintings like those in my apartment. You did? We found them at a, we found them at a garage sale. <laughs> I love his decor. It feels like the black exploitation version of the Corova milk bar from Clockwork Orange. I gotta yes. say, the whole naked woman on every wall kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's very Kubrickian. You know, Stuart, you say you feel like this third act is kind of a joke. I, I feel like that's what they do with Dick here. Like, they spend so much time. He flies from Florida <laughs> back to Colorado. We, we get this long scene where he's on the phone hooking up, getting a snowcat and driving up there. You know, this had to take hours and hours and hours. And he walks into the hotel and gets an axe to this chest. I do feel like that's a punchline there. He does bring them a snowcat. It was very nice of him to do go to all this trouble to get them the means by which they can get out of there. But no, yeah, he himself does little more than that. Yeah, he also is a distraction. Wendy would be dead if he hadn't shown up when he did, and Jack's like, ah, I can kill the bitch later. Let me go kill the cook now. But yeah, that is all he does. And Scatman was upset about that. He had read King's book and thought he was going to get the Dick Halloran role from there, which I won't talk too much about. I imagine we'll be talking about it next week. Is there some kind of psychic war going on? Don't tell me. I'll watch it next week. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's, it's, it's character driven. It's not supernatural okay. driven. But instead, no, he, here's your ride. Here's your dis distraction. I'm going to be killed now. And you want to talk about the poor racial stereotype about the mystical black man. How about the fact that the only person killed in this movie, the only person murdered in this movie is a black man? 
Yeah, it's part of the, actually the stereotype is that the magical minority, I'll call it a minority, because they're not always black. Sometimes they're Native American, sometimes they're Oriental, but they're always a minority that's going to teach the white characters how to, you know, live life and channel mystical powers or whatever. Yeah, they always get killed. That's always the, that's always how they're rewarded for all of their teaching is like to be written out in a very undignified way. Not a fan of it, but I will say the death is a shocker. And, you know, it was horrifying then and now. Even though I think largely this last half is not that scary, I do really do hate to see Scatman go down. And it's a jump moment because we've seen so many long shots in this hotel. And when you see him walking down a hall and the camera's following him, you don't expect Jack to hop out from behind a pillar and just axe him in the chest and kill him in one blow. I mean, you just don't get it. And as a kid, I might have screamed out loud at this. I can't remember. I do remember being very scared by that scene. And then Wendy is pretty much forgotten. After she's left in the bathroom weeping, her story's pretty much over. She's just there to walk onto the set of a Scooby-Doo takeoff. I don't know, but I hate them. Please cut those scenes. In some versions of the movie, they were cut. In all versions of the movie, they should be cut. It's the one time I really was just like, come on, this is not what you're doing. These are the cliches that you're avoiding. Up to this moment, Shining has shown us a new way of doing horror. And now that we have skeletons covered in cobwebs, I'm thinking, all right, you ran out of ideas. Poorly done skeleton. I mean, this looks like Disneyland Haunted Mansion. Oh, no, don't even give it that credit. This is JC's Haunted House. It's bad, but to your point about Wendy, Diane Johnson, you know, it was a female script collaborator. She said she wrote a lot of scenes for Duvall. I don't know why they weren't cut. Maybe they were filmed and cut, or maybe Kubrick in the parsing down of the shooting script said no to them. It's very clear to me that Kubrick is not interested in Duvall as a sympathetic character, and so I don't think he would want to film those scenes if Diane wrote them but what is what she's left doing is basically running around and having the audience laugh i want to say when i saw the theatrical projection people were by and large enjoying the movie but when she's running around waving that knife going Daddy! i mean a lot of giggles a lot of giggles at shelly duvall as a kid i was fascinated by the thought of a life-sized maze and something you could get lost in and you didn't have corn mazes at halloween where you grew up you know, I don't know if we did or not. I never discovered them until after, as an adult, I moved away from the Midwest and then moved back. And now, because of The Shining, I try to go to the biggest, baddest corn maze I can every year because I want this kind of experience. I one time stayed at a hotel that had a maze and I went out there expecting something like The Overlook. And no, it was like the size of a tennis court and really pathetic. But... I've always been fascinated by this maze. It is a complete Kubrick creation. Stephen King, like I said, had hedge lions and hedge animal dogs, topiaries that would move and attack. Well, after those skeletons, I'm glad they didn't go for the hedge animals. Impractical Mm -mm. with those special effects at the time. And I want to see next week, but I just can't imagine that not looking stupid, uh, attacking plant. It sounds stupid having never read the book or seen what's coming (laughs) next week. It's in there. I do remember it. So they went with this maze, and I this chase at the end, you're taking the Steadicam stuff we'd seen throughout the film, but now using it in its most tense way, where you feel that the camera could be Jack chasing Danny, even though Jack's a few turns behind. Love, love, love the kinetic energy of that scene. 
Yeah, it's just, again, like most of this film, it's so hypnotizing. I, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you have, Arnie, if you've ever driven in the snow, there's this, you know, this thing called snow blindness where you just kind of get hypnotized by the falling snow and get veer off and crash. You get that here as you just get these steady cam shots of these snowy paths as you twist and turn around this maze. Yeah, you really feel like it's you're right there. Jack's right behind you. He's got that axe. You're running for your life. It's been copied a million times. I didn't recognize until now how much it, Alien 3 owes a debt to this. But yeah, Child's Play 2 did this. Yeah, the maze thing. Yeah, this is the one that I feel like gets most copied. There's lots of things about The Shining people take away from. But yeah, the trapped in the maze with the wide angle lens that just really distorts it in a way that is just amazing. Yeah, it's it's a terrific ending here. It's It's crazy to think that this is all fake snow. And that the set was 100 degrees and yeah. everyone was sweating because there were so many lights on. Because I'm telling you, it is just the blue, stark iciness of it. It just, I feel cold just watching. If you look at the original footage, I mean, it's all orange from the lighting. They mm-hmm. messed with the color to turn up the blues. Yeah, it's just so well done in that way that I never would have suspected. I mean, the salt they use for fake snow is absolutely perfect. I mean, we're down in it. The camera's pretty low and we're seeing it you know, be thrown up from people's feet, and it just looks so incredibly real, so incredibly cold. And again, Nicholson's performance, it may be over the top, but he sells me that he's freezing. And I did think to myself in my one moment out of this film, I'm like, you know, none of them are appropriately dressed to be playing outdoors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they didn't seem to bring heavy coats or anything. I don't get it. I get, you know, Shelley Duvall has a southern accent. I'll give her a pass. But they moved from Vermont. I mean, come on. They should have these parkas. And they brought in a ton of luggage. No way it's going to fit in that little bug they drove up there. But, you know, I remember as a kid loving this because I always wanted to play outside without a coat. It was, again, it was a fantasy here. He gets to slide out that window and run around in a maze. Yeah, I wanted to be Danny. Does Jack have a heart attack? We never really had a heart problem set up, but he's grabbing at his chest. I thought it was just hypothermia setting in. I mean, that, you start feeling real warm and you want to go to sleep and kind of looks like he just sits down eventually and freezes over. Yeah, I, I took it to being just that, that he had been tricked, that, you know, obviously Danny outsmarted him because Danny led him down a path that he then couldn't get out. And he was maybe not so sure about what he was seeing at this point. Anyway, keep in mind, he's been hit on the head and his leg is badly damaged. He's not doing well before he goes into the maze. He gives up is what the way I take it. He gives up and just he can hear them getting away in the snowcat and he's howling in defeat because he knows there's no way out. Kubrick editings, I, I, there's sometimes that it's just pure magic the way he can cut from two things. Seeing them cut to that dummy, it's not even really Nicholson, but that frozen Jack uh, the next morning, it's just one of those ellipses that I just, I'll never forget. That freaked me out so much as a kid, too. I didn't even know what to take as that. The jump cut, you know, he's dying, dying, dying. Next day, he has icicles on him and he's dead. <laughs> Yeah, jump cut. There's probably his most famous jump cut is 2001, Boned Spaceship, but this is my number two. So then we get the fade to the photo on the wall. I mentioned it earlier and kind of the different interpretations. I always took it to mean, you know, it goes back to when Grady goes, you've always been the caretaker here. That he just became part of the hotel and that his death, he's now one of the ghosts and the next caretaker might be visited by him in the restroom. I gotta wonder, is Scatman on this wall somewhere? He died there too. Has he been sucked in there? Will he be tormenting people later? I saw him as such a friendly person, but 
I would be looking around trying to find Scatman. Forget Jack. We knew he was crazy from the get-go. But it's Scatman I'm going to wonder is on that wall or not. I scoured that picture. All white people. That, that's why I'm going with this theory. All white people on that July 4th, Birth of America, 1921, you know, picture. I, I don't know. Scatman, maybe he's gone to the Good Shining Hotel. Well, that photo was an actual photo from 1921. They... I don't think Photoshop is the term, but for lack of a different verb. Paste. Yeah, they, they pasted Nicholson's face onto somebody else's body from a, a legitimate photograph of the time. But I take it as the people the hotel corrupts become the ghosts. So Scatman, I don't think, would be there to haunt others. And But what did the girls do? They weren't awful. I mean, I guess they, we were told they tried to burn the place down, but those little girls deserved a happy ending. They didn't do any attacking. They were scary, and they wanted to play with Danny forever and ever. I I don't know. I, I have a feeling they're going to pocket him. I think these ghosts go into reserve, and depending on who moves in there, if they feel like Scatman will do the job, they'll send him in. When do they send in the guy with the dog outfit? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, hopefully never when I'm staying at a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> but this isn't the original ending, even... When this film was released, as you mentioned, Stuart, Kubrick was editing this up until the very end, including after it was already in theaters, there was an additional scene, yet another twist. It's Danny and Wendy in a hospital recovering, and Omen shows up and hands Danny a yellow ball, the one that came out of room 237, possibly. Hmm. Does that mean Omen was in on it the whole time? I don't know what that is. Or is that just is. supposed to be foreboding? I mean, he was hiring new people. Presumably he has to do this every year. I'm presuming every year people either kill each other or, you know, quit or something happens. He must be used to this at this point that <laughs> it always goes this way at the hotel. I don't think it does always go this way because the last one was the 70s. I think you have to have a shiner. If you bring up people who have absolutely no gift, they might sense something or get the chills up their spine, but there's not going to be any axe murders. That should definitely be in the interview questions then. Do you or have you ever shined? <laughs> the reason it was cut out is because even Kubrick thought it was one question too many, because it raised the question, did any of this really happen? Was Wendy in the hospital the whole time and this was all in her head? Was Omen in on it? And by giving Danny the ball, saying that he is complicit with the ghosts, is it all just a big coincidence? It asked too many questions, so they ended up cutting it and just, we never see Wendy and Danny off the mountain. I think it would have been anticlimactic. I think the way that it ends, this movie has been about Jack Nicholson, it has been about Jack Torrance. I think that it ends up with Jack, for whatever it means, in that photograph, I think is the right ending. There was also another ending that Kubrick pitched to King, of all things. Like you said, Stuart, I guess Kubrick wanted everybody's opinion. In his first phone call with King, Kubrick said, here's the new ending I devise. What if they kill Jack, but then the spirit transfers into Dick, and Dick finishes what Jack started by killing Danny and Wendy and then himself? He really <laughs> hated Scatman, didn't he? Just hated him. This was probably long before he was cast, but... No, okay, yeah, fair enough. You know, I trust Kubrick. I, I trust that he thought about that idea and recognized that it didn't and went a different way. I think that he usually, not always, but usually is a good editor of himself eventually. And if he had cut out those skeletons, I think that I would have said 
he did a great job of parsing out all the cheesiness from this movie. We don't need that. I don't think we need any of that body-hopping kind of traditional horror stuff here. It's scarier that we don't understand and we don't know. The ambiguity helps create the claustrophobic terror of this movie. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Jacob. You know, Artie, you started off saying maybe I'm and Stewart are, are, we're just too biased for Kubrick. And here's the thing. I'm thinking about the Kubrick films I like. This is towards the bottom of the ones that I still like. You know, 2001, Clockwork Orange, Pass of Glory, Dr. Strangelove. I, th- those are all films that I would consider better films than The Shining. But there is something about this film that reminds me of 2001. This hypnotic cinematography that it has. This vibe where once I start watching it, I cannot pull myself away from it. One of the great things about, you know, especially a horror film, you want to be drawn in. You want that haunted house story, that that spooky feeling. And Kubrick does that, I think, almost perfectly. There are issues with characters and things like that. But as far as the atmosphere and, and what I like in horror, I like that atmospheric horror. That's why I like a lot of Japanese horror films. It's It's just about that spooky haunted house feeling. But then when things do erupt in the third act, when Jack goes crazy, man, what a great climax. What a great release. And when he's chopping that door down and Wendy is sitting there screaming, you know, he didn't have a lot of nice things to say about Duval, but man, she sells the terror of that moment. And, and so for me, not usually a horror fan, this is the horror film that I go to. And, you know, not my favorite Kubrick film, but I find it has a lot of the same similarities that my favorite one, 2001, does, where it pulls me in, where I just want to sit down and watch it. I better not have a meeting. I better not have to be going anywhere, because if I catch this in the corner of my eye, I'm going to sit down and watch it. Strong recommend for me. Stewart. Love the movie. Love, love, love the movie. Agree with you, Jacob. Not one of my very favorite, but that's a testament to how much I do love most of Kubrick's work. I think that this is the best of his later works, which is to say out of Barry Lyndon and Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, this is the one I would most gravitate towards watching again. But it is not... I think he had that magical decade, again, Paths of Glory into Clockwork Orange is really the period that I really, really think that he found his voice. And here, he repeated his voice. Again, I almost see this movie as an expression of how he couldn't create, how he was trying to go beyond King, and it didn't quite come together, at least as a narrative. This movie doesn't make full sense And I'm not willing to sign up to all of the crazy conspiracies that try to make it make sense. I am okay with its ambiguities. I like that it's a puzzle. And I'll tell you what, all I need to do is see that snippet of the beginning of that helicopter shot, and I get pulled in again. This movie will suck you in. You will never want to leave the Overlook Hotel. It's just like what Jack Torrance said. You want to stay there forever and ever and ever and go over all the things that you see because I don't think that they'll ever completely come together for me in the way that they do in a traditional King story. I think that's why Stanley Kubrick's movie is better than Stephen King's novel. That's my opinion anyway. We may fight about it. I know we're going to discuss it more next week, but high recommend from me. I'm still going through all the Stephen King novels for part of Books and Nachos, but as I stated in my Shining review, when all is said and done, The Shining, the book, may stand atop the mountain as my favorite King book. This movie is very different from that book, but I do wonder, when all is said and done, 
I think The Shining may stand atop the pile of movies as my very favorite King adaptation. It is a loose adaptation. And I understand why King gets so defensive and says it's not his book and he didn't, and it wasn't done the way he thought it should be done. He's very devoted to his own words. He wrote it the way he wrote it and thinks that's how it should be. This is an interpretation of it. But I think it's a damn good one. I think King gets it wrong when he says that it's not a good movie. It is a cold movie. To me, it is Kubrick's second best. And that is one below Clockwork Orange. I agree that the camera work and the technical prowess in this film is first rate. That said, what makes me love this film, I like the camera work a lot. It draws me in. But what sets this atop everything is Jack Nicholson. You're never going to forget this performance upon which every other role he does will be based. If you'd put any other actor in this role, I could have called this movie a beautiful failure, as I consider many of Kubrick's films. But the casting of Nicholson, which King hates, works for me, not because it becomes this great character drama of a man's descent into madness, but because it becomes a great showcase of an actor's ability to engross and entertain and scare. This movie has awesome visuals, but Nicholson is the star of the show. Nicholson gets my highest praise for his work here. This movie scared me of Jack Nicholson for many years, but eventually I went back and saw Cuckoo's Nest and saw a lot of his 80s stuff, and then Batman, this movie made me a Nicholson fan for life. Although I haven't seen the bucket list yet. It's on my bucket list. (laughs) It is? I don't think I ever want to see that movie. (laughs) It's Nicholson, and I'm a Nicholson fan for life. You guys are Kubrickians. I guess I'm Nicholsonic. A Nickelodeon? (laughs) And as far as the ambiguity goes, I like this as a horror tale. And the thing about ghost stories is I don't necessarily need locked down answers when it's all said and done. I watched this as a very young child without the cognitive ability to start questioning psychological motives. And I just took it very much at face value and went, yep. He was absorbed by the hotel and became a ghost, hence why he's in the picture. And watching it now, I can see so many different sides and so many different ways to look at it. I still don't necessarily agree with anybody in room 237, but... Come on, the space shuttle was fake. The moon landing was fake. <laughs> they, that oh, might be geez. right. I mean, he convinced me on that. He just didn't convince me that Kubrick was... This was Kubrick revealing the truth. It. Yeah. <laughs> It was a deleted scene from 2001. I'm sorry, that guy pissed me off. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, this is an amazing film. And I think that everybody should check it out. If you can see it in a theater, absolutely great. If not, pick up one of the home video releases. I still say this Blu-ray, they did some color correcting and got rid of some scratches. Best it's ever looked. I'm not going to let the next few years pass without watching this again. This is something that needs to be in my horror rotation. So, yes, the strongest of recommends, three for three. That said, if we ever return to Kubrick, I might not be so kind. Yeah, you know, I hear you. It is, you're right about one thing. It is a performance you will never forget. I think it's some of his best work and kind of his hammiest, but I do enjoy it. I, I can't deny anyone that would say this is not their favorite Jack Nicholson performance. It is the one I always go to when I think of him. I know I'm going to miss him next week, 
What? You don't think Steven Weber from Wings can carry the same pathos <laughs> and charisma as Jack Nicholson? Oh my god. That is, I feel bad for him. I feel really bad for anybody that would have to fill these shoes. It's one of those parts that, how do you go on after this guy? But yeah, that's a lamb to slaughter, I gotta say. Poor Steven Weber. If I don't hate him, he'll have won. <laughs> And King wanted this done early on. I mean, in 80 and 81, King was like, well, Kubrick's film, it's a little cold, but not so bad. By like 82, 83, he said, going, if I could get the rights back, I would love to remake The Shining. Just a few years away from Kubrick's movie coming out. And it would happen. It wouldn't happen until 1997. And King had to make a lot of deals to do it. But, yeah, we will get next week Stephen King's The Shining. You know what? I will give it this much. I recognize, having reread the book, that there is room for two movies. There should probably be a more faithful record of what Stephen King wrote. I dare say it will be half the film we just watched, but I do want to see it. I actually, I don't know that I want it in three nights and six hours or however long this movie is, but I would like to see what is King's vision. Let's do the side by side. Yeah, let's go back to the Overlook next week. Yeah, not having read the book, I am kind of interested to see what the controversy is all about. What does King want? And I'm still not convinced the six-hour adaptation, I haven't rewatched it yet, but I'm not convinced that it will completely convey King's vision, and oh, I will- please. He needed five more hours? Give me a break. No, I think he just needed a budget better than TV and an actor better than Steven Weber, if memory serves. But I'll go into more of that next week, but until then, head to booksandnachos.com, where you can hear my entire analysis- of The Shining and the other King works. You can hear Salem's Lot carry and a couple of the Salem's Lot short stories over there as well. And then head to the forums and let us know what you think of this movie review and the Books and Nachos review. The forums link can be found from nowplayingpodcast.com. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com, there's a banner at the top. We have, for the very first time, we're trying an experiment. We opened the vault thanks to Curse of Chucky coming out, the Child's Play retrospective series, our very first donation series ever, is once again available, but only until New Year's. So if you want to hear the six Child's Play reviews, find out how to donate by heading to the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. You've taken Books and Nachos to a new level. I never want to go to that level. I will never be doing the hour-long <laughs> podcast you are. But great job on that. Yeah, everybody, really. Even if you don't read the books, go listen about the books. Really worth your time. That's what I'm doing. I'm listening so I don't have to read them. And I do stay <laughs> spoiler-free. I don't reveal major endings without huge warnings. So if you are trying to decide if you want to read the books... That's what I'm there to do, and if you've read the books, hopefully increase the comprehension. But yeah, here, at Books and Nachos, I don't talk about the movies, that's what we're here to do, and here, I'm gonna try not to analyze the books, that's what I do over there. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. It's time for us to go away for a week, because all podcasting and no play makes Jack a dull boy.
what's here, Mrs. Torrance? Come on, Ed. Wake up. You just had a bad dream. Everything's okay. Danny can't wake up, Mrs. Torrance. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. All my friends are here. You have friends everywhere in the Overlook, Mr. Torrance. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Shining novel, as well as the 2013 sequel, Dr. Sleep. There is something that wants us to join the party. Don't you understand that? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new King movie review. Come play with us. Forever. And ever. And ever. In the archives section of our website, you can find reviews of other Stephen King movie series such as Carrie and Salem's Lot. You can also hear reviews of other films such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You'd do better just to listen, Mr. Torrance. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. It's amazing how fast you get used to such a big place. I tell you, when we first came up here, I thought it was kind of scary. <laughs> I fell in love with it right away. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Every good time. Yes, Dad. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. But if you help me, the way Danny's been helping me, then we can get through this. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd, because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there till next April. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. I've got something for you you're not going to find in any of those boxes, if you want it. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Here's Johnny! Now Playing's The Shining Retrospective Series is edited by Phil, Dylan, and Arnie. 
ever thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Now playing credit narration by Brock. You keep pouring, and you can say anything you like, big boy. The Shining films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I see you can hardly have taken care of the business we discussed. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Words of wisdom, Lloyd. Words of wisdom. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Kissing, kissing. Yeah, that's what I've been missing. Gentlemen, I think the party's over. I like it too, but the big deal here is that someone is vacuuming right now. Hold on one second. <laughs> Apparently, the cat has fleas. All right. So, <laughs> so she's flea bombing and vacuuming them up. She's going to close the door. Meanwhile, oh, we're going to constantly hear this <laughs> from Stuart. And Rob. Again. We gotta get you this. Just want me to 100. do a hundred takes? Yes, do it a hundred times, and we'll pick. I just wanted one where the mic didn't bounce. That's all I wanted. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right, Mister Kubrick. Red Rock. Uh, um, I'll go. Oh, 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 yeah. Red Rock. Hit him with the plot. And I do wonder if once edited, this will be the longest time before plot summary in a podcast. <laughs> Give me the plot, Arnie. Red Rock. Wendy confronts her husband with a baseball bat, knocking him in the head, and I wrote licking him in the pantry. <laughs> That's the uh, sexy shining. <laughs> Sex, the shining. Triple X parody. Yes. <laughs> Red Rock! All negative energy, and it's specific to the outlook. The outlook shines. If you went to the holiday Overlook. Inn, Overlook. Yeah. What's the outlook? Is that, that's, I that that's an email program by Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. I'm aware of that, but I think <laughs> you are a computer guy. Red Rock.